Hi everyone, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, and a very warm welcome to the Auckland War Memorial Museum. For this, the Yunuku Pride 2020, an event that encourages us to raise and interrogate societal questions. So welcome, welcome. I'm Tom Sainsbury, or Thomas Sainsbury, your host. Um, thank you for that, thank you. Um, tonight, as it is Pride Festival, we will be talking about the LGBT experience and the politics that come with that. Relative to other countries in Oceania, LGBTQI plus rights are advanced in Aotearoa, being the first in the region to enact same-sex marriage. And globally, there is a shift, but there are still places where being queer, gay, bisexual or transgender is a criminal offence or worse, it can be punished by death. Our panellists here tonight will be discussing their take on the LGBT experience, where we've come from within this country, the fights that we still have as a community, and about an ideal future to which we should all aspire. I'll just quickly introduce the panel. First up, we've got Tanu Gago, who is an artist and an advocate for the rainbow community. Last year, he was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit in the New Year's Honours List for his long-standing services to art and the LGBTQI plus community. Which is amazing, but I think what's more amazing is he's one of the creative minds behind the fierce provocative dance group called Fastswag, which is amazing. <laughs> then we've got Louisa Wall. Louisa is a, member, uh, is a New Zealand Member of Parliament for Manurewa, having stood for the New Zealand Labour Party. She has represented New Zealand in both netball as a silver fern and rugby union as a member of the Black Ferns. She was also a stalwart behind getting marriage equality in New Zealand. Then we've got this darling here, Nahuia Te Awa Kotuku. In 1972, New Zealand's Gay Liberation Front, led by Nahuia, rallied around the statue of Queen Victoria in Albert Park for one of the earliest public demonstrations of Aotearoa's gay liberation movement. paving the way for many of the freedoms we enjoy today. She has gone on to become an academic specialising in Māori cultural issues. And finally, we've got Wellbeing Ings. Professor Ings is a disobedient thinker. An internationally renowned speaker and an educational reformer, he sees productive disobedience as behaviour that pushes our thinking and action into new and unconsidered realms. Specifically, he questions our anxious micromanaging of thought and our preoccupation with tick-box assessment, which is amazing. In 2017, his best-selling book, Disobedient Teaching, became influential in the reconceptualization of New Zealand education. Although Professor Ings is an award-winning author, he is also a designer and a director. His interest in film as a storytelling medium has seen his three short films, Boy, Munted and Sparrow, selected for numerous international film festivals, including Cannes. Boy was shortlisted for the 2006 Academy Awards. Well done. That's our panel. Before, we, um, before I kind of like focus on you all individually, I've just got a couple of questions. So I just did that description of you. I was given some kind of blurbs to describe them and stuff, and then I did my own research. But I remember um, at the end of last year, 
I was doing something, I was a panellist in something, and someone read a blurb or a bio of mine from 2002, which focused heavily on my time at Matamata College in the 90s. So I just... <laughs> I just wonder, if, um, if we just go through... Is that how, how I described you? Is that how you would describe yourselves? Don't know? Um, probably not. Probably not? How would you describe yourself? Um, I don't know. I feel like that was, like, my LinkedIn profile. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but if I had to describe myself, I would just say, outside of a context like this, I'm pretty shy. And I just like to be low-key. You know? Right. Yeah. Louisa? Kia ora mai no tātou. Ngā mihi aroha kia koutou katoa. And um, thank you to Auckland Museum for providing an opportunity to add some value to the uh, Pride Festival. Um, I'm incredibly proud to be here. Uh, in terms of that introduction, I mean, they're descriptors, they're things that I've achieved in my life. And uh, for me, they do represent who I am. I mean, I've always had dreams and aspirations from a very young age. Um, so becoming a silver fern when I was in the seventh form uh, at Tōpōnui Atea College, then going on and playing rugby... And I, and I think, thank you. <laughs> um, but using, using that as a platform to go to university, uh, and um, where I come from in, in Waitahanui and Taupo, it wasn't a, a normal trajectory for a child growing up in our small village, and then platforming off that to become a member of parliament. Yeah, it is very much how I've lived my life. Um, I'm incredibly aspirational. I'm aspirational uh, for our Māori communities, so from an, as an Indigenous woman, uh, I'm aspirational for our LGBT communities. Uh, and so um, law reform uh, throughout the Pacific and globally, given there's still 70 countries around the world where we are criminals, uh, is something that I'm incredibly committed to and passionate about as a first principle uh, because there's nothing wrong with us. There never was. And we are uh, manifestations of our atua, our gods, uh, and so we're at a particular point in, I think, global history where the recognition of our status is all about colonisation and it's about the subjugation of our Indigenous peoples. So I'm a proud Takatapui woman. And Nahuea? Tēnei te mihi ki a tātou katoa i rauranga tira mā. No mai, haere mai piki mai, kake mai, ki te paenga hiringa waka, ki a koutou, ngā kaimahi o tēnei whare taonga, ngā mihi kauana. Um, it was extraordinary on Saturday to think back almost 50 years to a small group of brave, foolhardy, crazy dedicated, risk-taking young people. And there were no more than 12 of us. I remembered them on Saturday because there were thousands, 50 years later. And that is a tribute to the men and the women and those in between who were on the steps that day nearly 50 years ago. E hara taku toa i te toa takitahi, e ngari taku toa takitini e. My achievements are through the hard work of many people. I'm sitting here with you tonight because I'm one of the last 
few standing. I see in the audience tonight women with whom I have fought the battles for decades. Tēnā rākui, Charmaine, kōrua, kō tānia, ngā mihi kawana ki koe, Ruthie. There are freedom fighters in this room. Pēti, we've fought for decades and the fight will continue. We can take nothing for granted. Kia ora koutou. And Fanny Welby. Kia ora mai tātou, nga mihi nui naku ki a koutou katoa. Um, when you hear beautiful flash presentations about yourself, all you can do is fall from grace. And um, the truth is, my dad's a sharing contractor in Pukiatua, and um, I like corned beef and potatoes, and I'm, I'm not a flash guy, but I stand up for things I believe in. And I've had the grace and fortune to live in a time to be able to stand beside people like that. Many of them have passed during the AIDS pandemic, and many, many people, including people sitting in this room now, have paid huge costs. But I'm an optimistic man, and I'm, I'm proud to belong to a very, very diverse thing we call a community that I don't think is a community. But it has as its core one thing that I would like to count myself amongst, is that we try to pursue a fair world for good people to live the best way they can. Um, Tano, I'll just ask you the first question. For someone who's new to FAF swag, how would you describe it to them? If I'm being honest, I would say that FAF swag is um, a group of friends who started out with like really modest ambitions to um, feel present in Tamaki Makoto. And I think the one thing we all share in common is that we kind of had a collective fatigue around being erased from our national identity. Mm-hmm. Um, is dance your main form of expression as the, as the group? So there's currently 13 members. We've been operating for six years now um, across the country, around the world. Um, and I have to say that just for the young people in the room so they can hear that <laughs> you can be brown and queer and operate around the world. So... <laughs> Um, And we all uh, sit in different pockets in the arts and we all have different aspirations in terms of our creativity. Um, Dance, for some reason, seems to be the most visible thing in Auckland. So we're fortunate enough to um, kind of fall into this awkward leadership role as a collective of people simply by virtue of our hyper-visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's often a responsibility that we all take to heart. Um, and so in our respective mediums, no matter what we're practicing, we just try to be unapologetically brown, indigenous, queer, all the time, 24-7 hours. Um, is that hard? I mean, is that hard? No, I think it comes quite naturally to, to a lot of our people. Um. You're listening to RNZ in a discussion recorded in front of an audience at the Auckland Museum, which asks, 
where to for New Zealand's rainbow communities. I'm Thomas Sainsbury, and joining me on stage here in the midst of Auckland's Pride Festival are the panellists Louisa Wool, MP, Wellbe Yings, Professor and Designer AUT, Emeritus Professor Nahueti Awa Kotoku, and award-winning photographer, interdisciplinary artist and filmmaker Tanu Gago. Um, Louisa, why is it important that same-sex couples can get married in the eyes of the law? Well, fundamentally, it was because our laws were discriminating us against us uh, based on our, our sexual orientation. Uh, and as we all know, the fundamental principle of uh, democracy is that citizenship is equal. Uh, and essentially, that was the proposition in the bill, because uh, it's actually really easy to get married. Two consenting adults pay you $122.60. I think, I think it's still the same amount of money. Uh, so you fill in a form, you pay the fee, and you get a licence. And we were being prohibited from uh, what others take for granted based on uh, their ability as residents and citizens to do it. So, you know, highlighting that the state was the discriminator uh, and, and that being uh, fundamentally what we were trying to change um, made it really easy for people to see. And therefore you can dispel the historical issues around homosexuality, the moral overlay that we've had because of these English laws where we had a Church of England uh, and there was uh, inextricably a link between church and state. I mean, as a new country, we were explicit. We were going to separate church and state. And so it was actually holding us accountable uh, for democracy. Fundamentally, I believe New Zealanders uh, believe in fairness, we believe in justice, uh, and we're rational. And so when you can put these simple propositions to people and they get it, then you can take the whole country with you uh, to a point now where we just take it for granted that people are getting married. And so when the law went through and someone said, so what's the difference? I said, well, nothing. There's just going to be more marriages. There is no gay marriage we just have marriage in New Zealand between two adults, consenting adults, who love one another and want to create a family. And that, it's as simple as that. Um, how, did you, like, how did you get involved? Um, I think we get involved because um, it's personal. When I joined the Labour caucus, I joined a caucus that had an existing base of LGBT members of parliament. Um, so Marion Street, uh, Grant Robertson, Charles Chevelle, but obviously following in the footsteps of Chris Carter, Tim Barnett, Georgina Beyer, um, empowered to be the chair of our Labour Rainbow caucus. Uh, and then everything is actually about um, serendipity or it's about timing global timing around, uh, you know, a global conversation in France and the United States and the UK. And then you have to be prepared to step into that dialogue and that discussion and create the space for us to have the same uh, dialogue in Aotearoa New Zealand, which is exactly what happened. You know, and I always credit Barack Obama and his ability through his children uh, to reconcile with his own religion and then at the same time say, what is the difference you know, my children are playing with uh, the children of gay people. Uh, there is no issue. My children have no issue. So I can actually suspend my Christianity uh, because I believe fundamentally in citizenship, democracy, 
uh, and then create the space for that question to be asked of our leaders at the time. And to be honest, everyone said yes. So David Shearer, who was leading the Labour Party, John Key, uh, Tariana Turia, Peter Sharples, Peter Dunn. Uh, and I guess the difference here was be, uh, because that question was asked and it wasn't a priority of John Key and his government, uh, you have to be in a position to write a bill. Thank you, Prudence, my wife, who wrote the bill. Um, <laughs> You know, and then belong to a, a caucus, a responsive caucus, and I will stand on the tradition of the Labour Party, uh, who allowed me to put it in the ballot. Um, and then the Rainbow God smiled on us, hadn't been in the ballot very long, and then we were able to, to debate marriage equality here in New Zealand. And my fundamental question from the beginning was, please vote for it at first reading, and then we as New Zealanders can debate and discuss the relevance of this particular law reform to us. And that's what happened. And we managed to keep most of the people. We had 80 votes at the first reading, and by the third reading it, it dropped to 77. But that's still a, you know, a huge uh, majority of my colleagues in that parliament who supported that bill. You, were you worried? Were you daunted? Was it, a, was it hard? No. It wasn't hard? No. None of it was hard. Uh, you have to suspend um, the negative uh, input, I'll call it. I mean, there was lots of um, vicious and vitriolic attacks. Go, you're going to go to hell, you're going to burn, you're going to ruin the country, uh, you're demonic, you're a manifestation of the devil. I mean, all those kind of sentiments. Um, and you just you have to push to the side and say, I don't even know these people. You know, they're projecting onto me a belief system that is got, has got nothing to do with fundamental human rights. It's got nothing to do with citizenship. It's got nothing to do with social justice. And you find the voices in society who agree with those principles. So the unions, the disability sector, feminists, you know, all those marginalised, vulnerable communities who understand what it means to be othered. And actually, fundamentally, we all then join this waka which was about you know, a human rights approach and being very deliberate about saying the state is the discriminator. It is the state that is doing this to its citizens. And in a democracy, citizenship is equal. We all get one vote. Did Australia approach, did anyone from Australia approach you and talk about, uh, ask you advice or anything like that? Yeah, the Australian situation was always interesting because, in fact, the path that they followed was the only way forward. Right. And it was because of the dysfunction of their um, political system and the inability of the two big parties to be able to um, form a cross-party group, which was one of the first things we did. Um, and I was very fortunate because we had Tau Henare within the National Party, and a lot of people will be incredibly surprised. Um, but Tau's final term, he became what we call the international lead on... Um, we, we have a group called the Interparliamentary Union. It's, it's an international group, and Tau, uh, as the lead... Um, got to go to every six months to a different place around the world. And uh, after I got in in 2011, uh, the first trip uh, the following um, February was to Uganda. Mm -hmm. And uh, my caucus deliberately sent me to Uganda because the bill before their parliament was colloquially called Kill the Gays. And so there was a proposition in Uganda that uh, if you were found to be LGBT, you, you, 
the punishment was death. And if you knew someone who was gay and you didn't dob them in, it was seven years in prison. And so I was deliberately sent by the Labour caucus, thanks to Marion Streep standing up and saying we should send Louisa. Um, and the Greens sent Jan Logie. So Toe ended up on a trip with two lesbians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think through that process, he just couldn't believe that actually that was the proposition and they were going to kill us because of who we were. And he became a huge supporter. Uh, and then we had um, Kevin Haig from the Greens. And so we formed this cross-party group that apparently had never been done before, uh, but we managed to do it. And there were a lot of others. I mean, but the three of us kind of led that, that movement across the party and we were able to, uh, I think through that network, dispel all the reservations um, colleagues had and most of them were based on uh, propaganda in their electorates. <clears throat> uh, Paul Hutchinson, who was the most diligent, he was the chair of the uh, health committee at the time um, and the reason he voted for the bill, even though he knew, he said, my mother-in-law is never going to speak to me again um, because church going... Uh, he basically said, I've now heard evidence that says that uh, young LGBT people are stigmatised and that this will help alleviate issues of self-harm and suicide. And he said, if this measure can protect young LGBT people, how can I, as a doctor, but as a rational human being who's been given this evidence, vote against the bill? And his um, first reading speech, I think, blew everyone away because when he got up, I think everyone thought he was a no and he just methodically went through, uh, based on rationale, um, you know, logical thinking, and was able to uh, speak to, I think, a, a different audience about why it was so important. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Closer to home, um, so there's the Cook Islands, Nui and Tokelau who don't recognise same-sex marriage, even though they are territories making up the realm of New Zealand. Is there any give in that area? Like, are discussions being had, or...? Oh, I mean, the reality of um, our relationship with our realm countries is one where, in in the Cook Islands um, uh, situation, they're citizens of New Zealand. And we will always have a relationship because by virtue of their uh, Cook Island heritage, they become New Zealand citizens. Obviously, we've decriminalised. We did so in 1986. Uh, But since 1901, the Cook Islands have had our laws So we are part of that colonial history that I talked about. Yes, we inherited our laws from England, but the Cook Islands and our realm nations inherited our laws. And so we've been able to progress homosexual law reform. They're still going through that process, and I think one of the major factors we all need to consider in the Pacific uh, specifically is colonisation by the churches. And so our colonial history in the Pacific is one where you know, colonial powers came in and colonised, but the uh, impact of uh, the, col- the church colonisation has had a far greater impact than it did here in Aotearoa in New Zealand because we didn't lose our spirituality. You know, we were still able to acknowledge our atua uh, through our whakapapa, which is why I'm very clear that our atua made us. But that discourse doesn't happen in Christianity. In Christianity, we are not manifestations of God, in fact, we're manifestations of the devil. And so those challenges, I think, uh, are what's before us, which is why I'm calling on our religious leaders who fundamentally want to 
embrace and love our young LGBT people based on, on whakapapa, uh, based on um, us wanting them to be themselves. You cannot survive in a world today unless you know who you are and where you come from. Because that resilience of belonging means you can fend off any other person who is trying to dismantle you, destroy you, make you feel other, make you feel less than who you actually are. And I believe that, uh, especially for our young Māori Pacific, uh, it's the only way that we're going to address some of the horrific suicide statistics we have. Mm. And the only way that we can do that is that if we're loved and embraced, not only by our immediate family, but our hapū, our iwi, and if we're involved in the churches, then our churches have to love and embrace us for who we are as well. Because otherwise the consequence of self-harm and suicide is a reality that we're then saying we don't want to change. And I think the churches need to be held accountable because it's their teachings that are killing our people. On to Nahuia. What was life like? So you were in your early 20s in 1970 when you were part of the New Zealand Gay Liberation Front. What was, what was it like to be queer or LGBT in 1970s New Zealand? Hard. Um, <laughs> I immediately think back to an event which occurred in... March 1972, and it was probably our first major public outing here in Auckland. Auckland was being visited by Patricia Bartlett, who was, as some of you may recall, the most fascist campaigner of the Christian right. Anyway, she was going to be the star attraction of an event at the Bible Studies Hall in Upper Queen Street. Upper Queen Street. And so a group of us decided that we would disrupt that meeting. There were about, oh, I think 10 that came prancing through the door. And the most um, decorative of our troop was this splendid human being called Nigel Bomber, who, alas, was one of our first um, people to succumb to the plague of the 1980s. But dear Nigel was the most exquisite little Botticelli angel, and he used to wear very tight cut-off Levi's shorts and high platform heels ankle chains, and lots and lots of love beads, and this remarkable little very brief pale green singlet. Anyway, on this particular night at the Christian Biblical, whatever it was, hall in Upper Queen Street, we decided that we would go in there and we would make our point. Now, the um, lecture that Bartlett was giving on that particular evening was the sanctity of marriage. And she had a particular fixation about the sanctity of marriage, which was ironic in that she was actually a um, former nun 
of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as many of you know, I owe a great deal to the nuns. So I would never, ever slag off the nuns who taught me, nurtured me, and gave me a lot of my feminist perspective. However, Patricia Bartlett was a former nun, and she was about to speak on the sanctity of marriage, and we turned up, and we had this great big banner made from half a dozen different colored bed sheets, tacked very carefully together, and it said, gay is proud. And what we planned to do was get onto the stage, unfurl our banner, and Nigel was going to say, I want the right to marry the man I love. Well, the whole thing collapsed. They saw us coming. Suddenly, I was attacked by an old lady with a very long umbrella, <laughs> and I got whacked around the ears, at which point Nigel, in his full splendor, grabbed the umbrella, turned on the old woman, and said, how dare you, how dare you, how dare you hit a woman? <laughs> We scrambled to the stage, and then, lo and behold, cavorting through the other door came Tim Shadbolt and the anti-Vietnam protesters from <laughs> Resistance Bookshop, <laughs> saying, make love, not war. <laughs> war is the true obscenity. And we were being attacked by all these rabid heterosexuals. Anyway... As a result of that, one of the guys in um, the Alzapokpa group grabbed the other end of our big gay banner and he and I scrambled onto the stage and we pulled it out and it was unfilled and it said, gay is proud. And then Nigel got up and said, and I want to marry the man that I love. <laughs> and this was March 1972. One must remember at that same time, my own male relatives in my village, prominent men, were being isolated, criminalized, picked on, humiliated because they loved other men. They were subjected to the degradation of self-doubt, to the threat of losing their families, to the realities imposed upon us by a hostile society. And when I look at Trump and Bojo, I am reminded again and again and again that despite the legislation, despite the enactments, how can we really make the changes in the human heart? Because it's the changes there that matter. Guys are still being brutalized. Men that may show affection for each other in small rural towns. Women are still snarled at and teased and vilified on the beach if they hold hands as they come out of the ocean. We like to think that we've made huge progress. We have to be careful because they can flip it around.
We have to be vigilant. I'll never forget, though, when you got the bill through, I was there in Parliament House, and my immediate memory was of Nigeline, the fancy queen, saying, why can't I marry the man that I love? This discussion from the Auckland Museum features speakers well qualified to analyse the state of New Zealand's rainbow communities and to ponder their future. We join by panellists Louisa Wall, MP, Wellbeings, Professor in Design at AUT, Emeritus Professor Nahuea Te Awa Kotoku, and award winning photographer, interdisciplinary artist, and filmmaker Tanu Gagu. I'm Thomas Sainsbury, in the chair for this RNZ recording. And finally, on to Wellbe. Hello. Um, I'm really interested in this disobedient thinking that you've spent a lot of time working on and sharing with the world. Is there anything about being part of the LGBT community because you're instantly kind of outside of the norm? Has that kind of influenced your thinking or your research in any way? I think we were naughty children the minute we questioned um, that we weren't going to go to the school ball with somebody of an opposite gender. And so I think for many of us, we learned very early that we, we were uh, sinful, bad, mistaken. We, we, we learned on the outside, and we learned to lie to keep ourselves safe. And it's a terrible legacy, really. It's a terrible childhood when you grow up learning to lie to survive. I, was, I, was, I became involved in gay politics, but when I really, really became involved was the time when I first fell in love. And, um, and I realized in my heart that this was a right thing. I thought then, if you don't stand up, you will allow the world to bulldoze over what is right. And for each of us, we find right sometimes in, in Revelation, sometimes it just seeps in for us. And... While I use the word disobedient thinking, I think it's actually just responsible thinking. I think it's just taking ownership of, of who you are in the world and going, I believe we could get to a better place, and bugger it, I'm not going to sit in the, in the background pretending that everything's all right when it's not all right. I found myself disobedient in my family. Um, a few years later, my twin sister came out, and then my next sister came out, so something was in the drinking water at Pukiatua, but at that <laughs> At that time, um, we, our, our disobedience can end up alienating us unless we make connections with, with other people. So we often gravitate to cities trying to find our people. And, and sometimes the difficulty is we become other than who we are to try and belong. You know, we, we come to the city and we go, oh, shit, maybe I should be wearing designer clothes. Well, I, you know, and, and so you end up thinking, well, I'm, maybe I'm a C-minus gay man, you know, because I, I don't kind of fit. But there's a hunger a hunger to belong. So um, I don't think sexual... So I, I don't rate sexuality as the most influential thing in my life, um, but I see it as a significant thing. And if I could go back and um, have a talk to mum and dad at conception, I'd say, do it the same way. You know, I'm, I'm glad that I was a, a young gay man. I, I'm glad that at 12, even though I got my head kicked in, at school, I'm glad, even through the queer bashings, all through all those things, I am very proud that I am gay and I was given enough toughness to stand up disobediently 
against something that opposed that. So they do kind of relate. Time now for audience questions in this panel discussion about rainbow issues at the Auckland Museum. Could you one of you explain how gender identity represents the human rights act? Louisa, um, Alison's wondering how to get gender identity into the Human Rights Act. We have to change the law. <laughs> uh, it's an issue that has obviously been highlighted in the To Be Who I Am report that the Human Rights Commission uh, created in how long ago, Alison? You probably know. It's over 10 years. Yeah, 12 years ago. Uh, it's a piece of work that the current Minister of Justice is working on, so reform of our Human Rights Act. Uh, it is something that I've been passionate about, obviously, and tried to uh, amend through a statutes amendment proposition, which was rejected. But uh, it's on the work programme, and I know that for a lot of our community it's incredibly frustrating. Uh, but... Um, it is part of the work program and we have to wait. I mean, I know it's terrible, but a lot of the reform that we need, uh, we will need another term to be able to do it. And I know people will be frustrated by that, but um, that also needs to be seen alongside the work that Tracy Martin's doing in terms of the ability for people to register on their birth certificate uh, their gender based on gender identity as opposed to having, ha having to go through full uh, gender affirmation surgery, for example. So I know that you've been incredibly passionate about it. You're a champion for that law reform. It is part of our agenda, and all I can commit to is that uh, the Labour Party will do it. Uh, obviously, we haven't been able to do it in this first term uh, as government, but it is definitely something we hope to do in the next term of government. Kia ora. Um, thank you all for your wonderful um, talk, and it's been amazing. Welby, I wanted to know a little bit more about the clubs that Ngahue was talking about. <laughs> While we gain many things as a people, we also lose things. And oftentimes, as our culture sanitizes itself, we lose very rich things, and we face creating a history where those things are absent. So today, if I said to you, Shara Nata Devada in the cottage, the Omikau with the Kariik in there, um, sh tried to Shava Ellis, ended up in the dog wagon, and it's all going to be over for the fish and chips. That's Our Lady of the Golden Brooch. I've just told you about an arrest of somebody in your own language. So we had a language that was based on a thing called Polari, and our people used it to keep safe. And it was, I can see a few smiles here because some people know what that was about. Okay. But, and, and, and we had, so I'm not saying that that was a good world automatically. It was, a, it was quite a tough world, but it was very rich. We had the most outrageous senses of humor because we had to, because sometimes humor was the thing that got you through. So Mar Gleason's was a rough pub, you know. The, and, and many of our pubs had code names like the Lily Pond. And for many men who couldn't get into clubs, there was a network of public toilets where people had sex, and they all had code names. Now, we scrub that out because we go, well, that's a bit... Well, let me put it this way. I think a society is to be condemned for making generations of young men find 
their sexuality in public toilets because it was the only place You know, in, in 2017, the government came back and apologised to people whose lives had been destroyed, absolutely destroyed on the front pages of rags like Truth and Sunday News. The, the thing is that when we hear those kinds of apologies, we map them against a history of hearing similar things. And so when an issue that faces us that's important like today, we go, what about our young people? Or what about our vulnerable people who hiding behind the, for, the nature of church is this idea of conversion therapy that is just, it has no scientific basis whatsoever. When you say, I'm sorry to your people, why do you not cross the threshold and go, well, this should be criminalized? Why do you not do those things? So I think the, it, it brings me back to the point of that, that history. We're the only people who will recreate that. We're the only people who were recreated. That's why I have such deep, deep respect for oral history archives, for the Lagans, for the Charlotte Museum, for all those things where our people have gathered together our stories because if we don't tell them, they either disappear and we, be, we inherit somebody else's history or they get distorted. And we don't live in a single history. We live in multiple histories. And I think the only way we survive as a healthy society is to have those multiple histories given voice. And, and not to go in there with an editing pen because something might seem a bit tacky or nasty or, you know, those things are nasty because they came from a world that was nasty to people and people had to be tough and had to do things that were illegal or difficult because they had to. Nobody wants to grow up in the bogs of Te Awamutu. Nobody does. You know, nobody wants to learn how to... You know, in the early days of, of our first conferences, we used to run workshops on how to protect yourself if you were stopped by the police. Nobody wants to have to do that. Nobody wants to know, be given advice about how to, you know, who are the few lawyers you can go to if you get in trouble when someone's trying to take your kids off you in a custody battle. Nobody wants those things. But those things exist as a history. And I know people in this room who have histories that are very difficult. The difficult ones were wired up and given electric shock therapy at Oakley, at Tokanui, at what we now call, um, uh, and Kingseat, who were given the buckets to vo with the p medication to make them vomit into. This is aversion therapy. This is part of our history. Tomorrow is the anniversary in 1980 of when four of us marched with pickets outside the court down here in Auckland because the police had sent in other undercover agents into our gay sauna, the Victoria Spa, to entrap men, and they were arrested and tried. And for those of us who marched, we were photographed, so the next day I received a letter from the South Auckland Education Board not only docking my pay but reminding me that if I did anything like that again, I would lose my job. It wasn't until 1993 that we had the protection of knowing that if we were photographed, we could still be safe. So it's a thank you for the question you asked because it is both the exotic and the wonderful and also the difficult, and they constitute the fabric of our history. And that's why I admire everybody who tell your story. Tell your story. It may seem like nothing at the moment. It's not. It's a mark in time. And if we don't do it, nobody else will.
So for those here who have been battling both verbally and visibly since the early 70s to now, um, and legislatively too, or more recently I acknowledge, do you think we have won or have we managed in succeeding of creating a thin veneer of respectability and legal right? Do we, are we able now to relax? I'll just say one very quick thing, and I thank you for that question. I do. We must never, ever take it for granted. I think the experience of Trump and what he did to trans people in the military within his first three months in the House tells us what could very well happen. Um, take nothing for granted. I always look back at this way. So in 1920s in Berlin, it was one of the most wonderful, um, innovative, forward-thinking cities in the world. You know, our people flocked there. The sexology became, you know, universities were dealing for the first time. Staffed by our people, really, really unpicking something. Culturally, it was an explosion and a flourishing. Within 10 years, our men were having medical experiments done on them in concentration camps. Books were being burned. Those books you see in the burning when they show the book burning, those are actually, the, that's Havelock Alice's. That's, that's our people's stuff. They leave that bit out. That's not marks on the fire. That's the stuff from our people that got picked on and pulled out. That was the first stuff burned. It, it seems to me, I, I like this guy John Gray, and I know some people think he's a bit negative, but I, I agree with him. I don't think that we're on a path, a spiral path to a higher level of civilization. At any time our society is capable of great good and great atrocity. And it's our job to always be rational and vigilant and compassionate. Always, always to watch. Not, but, but with sufficient strength and optimism and drive so we don't get into a quagmire. And I think the point you make about Trump, I think lots of us shudder when we go, it, what it's illustrating is something we know. Because I don't think history repeats itself, but it does rhyme. It does yeah. rhyme. It does, it does yeah, it echo itself. Yeah. And I think that we are, we, if we are attentive to that, we make something better for the generations who will come after us. But we must also pass on that attentiveness. Uh, to wrap up this amazing discussion, I've just got one final question for each of the panellists. And if you could keep it to one sentence, that would be great. <laughs> So if everyone could answer, and we'll start here with, what's the best thing about being LGBT? I am a manifestation of my tūpuna. Uh, I, am, uh, I am strong, I am resilient, I'm beautiful, uh, I have this abundance of potential. I can be and do whatever I want to achieve. That is because uh, inherently um, I know who I am, I am through my whakapapa, uh, and for me, um, the gift uh, that my tūpuni gave me in being uh, takatāpui is the most precious thing in the world. And that's why I can be um, proud and use my voice to challenge those who want to other me, want to diminish me, uh, want to t tell me that I'm fundamentally flawed. I wasn't. I'm here by absolute design and I'm incredibly proud to um, sit here uh, and to be in this room uh, with all of us who uh, must remember we take our ancestors with us in every aspect of our lives. 
and nobody can make you feel little or an other. You, we give too much power to people to make us feel that way. And so that's what being LGBT, being takatapui, is for me. It's just having um, a sense of uh, fundamental um, pride uh, in knowing that I was created perfectly. And that is who I am. Nahuia? Ah, he wahine moe wahine ahau. E harahau i te LGBT. Um, that's an English series of capital letters. Not mine. I say wahine moe wahine because takatapui is me as well, although it defined a male relationship, not a female. Like my sister here, I am a manifestation of all those people that came before me. But I'd like to say at this moment, I am a queer queer. With a K and with a Q. Kia ora Um, I always struggle with this question because I think it's an ongoing journey. Um, my identity and my sexuality and my gender is something I've lived with for as long as I've been here and I think it's something that's always teaching me something. Um, so I can't really find something definitive but... Um, I just want to shout out my mom because, like, hearing all these stories, I just realized that, like, I come, I come, I came from like a really loving home, <laughs> and I was pretty lucky to not have to feel like I had to survive anything because I was like so loved. Um, and well, be? Uh, it's, it's probably a really simple answer in a way. Um, I, if, if I die tomorrow, I know that I have loved and been loved very deeply in my life. And, and that's the most precious thing to me. And I look around this room and I see people here in relationships, some that are new and some that are very, very old and some that are yet to come. And I think that's why this whole thing is worth it. That's why the whole thing is worth it. At the very basis of this was going, you could make a world where it's all right to love authentically. So I'm very grateful for that, and I'm, it's the fundamental thing that drives me. Um, I'd like to thank my guests, Louisa Wall, Wellbeings, Professor Nahuiati Awakotuku, and Tanu Gago for talking with me today about rainbow communities in New Zealand. In the chair, I'm Thomas Sainsbury for RNZ.